ASU Stanford. I'm Mark Milano, and this is the Henry George Program. This is a show about housing, land use, economics, and much, much more here in the Bay Area and beyond. Today, we have Daryl Owens. Daryl Owens is based out of Berkeley, East Bayer, and is a co-executive for East Bay for Everyone, and has been in the housing app for some time, even though he is quite young. Let's just get into it. Welcome, Daryl. Hey, man, what's going on? <laughs> well, nice to make it down here. You are the second East Bay for Everyone member to uh, to brave it, to go all the way across uh, the Bay Area to make it down to Stanford campus. And it's it's not fun. On transit. <laughs> on tra- Well, Victoria came down uh, on transit and then biked the rest of the way. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I took you, the, I, get, I got rid of the last mile problem. But, yeah, there you go. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 it takes forever to get from the East Bay here. It's one big Bay Area, but it's like a different world. D- Wait, did Victoria do it on a Sunday schedule? Uh, she came down on a Saturday, I think. It's worse to do it on Sunday. <laughs> I bet, yeah, and all, there's more construction now, too, everywhere. It's, oh, yeah, yeah, it was like a bus bridge, and then BART failed. You know, it was crazy. Transit as usual in the Bay Area. Uh, but, yeah, so East Bay versus, it's, I mean, yeah, it really is. People people stay in their own sphere. You you've This is your first time you've been on Stanford campus, and you've lived in the Bay Area your entire life. That is correct. That's I've, nuts. I've driven through Palo Alto, I think, to go to Half Moon Bay when I was a kid. Huh. For whatever reason, we came down the peninsula. Yeah. And I remember the like very suburban, uninspired downtown that is Palo Alto. But I'd never been on Stanford like campus before. Sure. Even though I've had friends that have gone there. And I've just been like, I've envisioned it always as, because I grew up in Berkeley my whole life, so I envisioned it always as just a flat Berkeley. Yeah. And I'm learning it's more like a giant campsite. Well, you're, you're complaining. <laughs> I mean, it's a campsite. It's it's car camping. I mean, there's yeah, cars everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you were. I've been to Berkeley campus, you know, a handful of times. But yeah, you were just saying there's not a whole lot that entices someone in the East Bay to say I got to make it down to the peninsula. Yeah, except for money. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, what are what are the what are the sites here? You ever say like, oh, I need to see that in Mountain View. I need to see that in Sunnyvale. Is there anything? I mean, if you want to see like. Crappy fifty suburban homes. I you know people do Eichler tours. You yeah, know? yeah. There you go. There you <laughs> so, go. <laughs> that's one thing. Uh, so I feel. I mean, I'd say one thing to comment on is the fact that you are in many ways the the wunderkind of 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 kind of the housing advocacy. You're you're impossibly young. How how, how young are you? Really? I'm like 21 going on 22. Well, I just say most people, you know, it takes them until like they're well in their 20s to kind of understand things are up. And you are... I got started at 19. (laughs) I mean, what what got you started so young into uh, housing advocacy? I don't want to make this stuff sad. Okay. All right. Here we go. Here we go. No, no, I I don't care. Um, Basically, I grew up in the East Bay. I grew up in Berkeley and uh, my family basically lost their house in 2013. Um, but I grew up in a neighborhood where it was a traditionally working class black neighborhood, central West Berkeley. And over time, uh, the neighborhood started becoming a lot more whiter. Um, and, you know, I didn't think that was necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I had lived in East Oakland when it was very black. And I thought when the Hispanics were moving in, I thought that's diversity. That's good. That's new cultures. And I don't have a problem with anyone moving in. I'm, I'm actually almost pro gentrification in that respect. But what makes it different is that I don't want there to be displacement in the process. Yeah. I don't think that people should move in at the expense of incumbents. I don't think that they are consciously doing that either. I think that the nature of our land use in our cities, where we all have to compete over a finite amount of housing, 
uh, makes this into a reality. So when my family left Berkeley in 2013, sort of the last black family on our block to do so, I mean, I, I stayed in North Berkeley. Um, I, I became very conscious about like, how do we stop this from happening to other parts of, you know, Oakland and uh, working class parts of Berkeley. I mean, San Francisco's pretty far gone, but there's still parts of San Francisco that are working class too. And this kind of came at the at the height of a lot of the gentrification debates going on. I remember the, you know, pu- puking on Google buses and stuff and <laughs> the mission. Well, I feel that was before, I mean, a lot of, I feel like- it was, it was like 2011. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like before Kim I. Cutler's article- there was kind of people weren't really talking about the fact that like gentrification is zero sum. You know, it's either when people are displaced, you know, it's just it's either us or them. And I feel there wasn't the idea that we could actually make room for everybody. It feels like it, it was a lot. It was a lot smaller voice, at least. You mean you mean there wasn't really like a pro more housing, get rid of the apartment ban voice. It certainly wasn't organized to the state it is now. Yeah, it's it's definitely the Yimby movement has. I mean, were, were you, changed the debate? Have you, have you were you hearing voices to like influence you, or are you kind of going on your own and trying to figure out the solutions? No, so like in high school, I remember I wrote like essays about like how to combat gentrification and sort of the same simplistic way that a lot of people say now, which is just like stop evil techies from moving here. Yeah, and and I kind of realized that like that was simplistic, and like. You shouldn't be deprived of a good economy or whatever domestic migrants or even international migrants seek after, which is nice wages and everything else. Not to say that the tech industry is good. It's got a lot of problems with it. I hate it. Everyone knows I hate the gig economy. Like I, It's super racist. But it's, it's a related question. Should cities ever grow? Yeah. Because the problem yeah. is when cities grow now, a lot of people suffer a lot. The problem is – well. Are they growing or are they just swapping people? I guess when cities have demand is what I mean to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if your cities don't grow, they become the Midwest. And so if you want people to leave your city, <laughs> I mean, that's what it is, too. People want this kind of like weird. They, they want their cities to be like McDonald's. They want to go there and kind of get the same thing every day. and It'll taste exactly the same as it did last time. That's, and that's the lure of the suburbs. Yeah, yeah. This, the suburbs is McDonald's in your backyard. And yeah, and a lot of a lot of um, urban dwellers kind of have a suburban attitude towards cities as well. That it should always be the same. But cities are dynamic; they grow. Yeah. And suburbs are racist and awful and a mistake. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> Berkeley Berkeley has a real you know core. It's not the biggest city, but it's a real it's well, a it's a real downtown core and has a real it is a you know great campus. But then it also is a ton of suburbs. It's a streetcar suburb. I mean, you know, Berkeley was founded as a commuter suburb for electric streetcars, you know, shuttling people to Oakland and to uh, the piers to take the ferry boat across to San Francisco. So it's by definition more urban. A lot of the streets are clearly streetcar design. You can tell where old streetcars used to be. Those cities tend to have a lot more compact urbanity about them. So, you, like the working class neighborhoods you're talking about, are these neighborhoods that like are largely part of the Oakland economy more than the Berkeley campus economy? Um, I mean, Berkeley's economy, I wouldn't just say is UC. There's also like the Bayer Corporation, which is like oh, that's okay. you know medical, uh, you know bio stuff. Um, but I mean, it has its own economy. I would say much of Berkeley's economy is split between the Oakland economy and the San Francisco commuter economy. Yeah, I mean, I would say most commuters at Berkeley BART stations are en route to San Francisco most of the time anyways. Sure. Um, I don't think the – I mean, the UC is the biggest employer, but I don't think that most Berkeley you know, employees are actually working at the UC. Yeah. And I feel Berkeley, what makes it different too is it also has this, this real strains of kind of uh, like hippie blood in the way it treats everything. At least when I see people make fun of the nimbyism in Berkeley, it usually is a hippie flavor to it. 
<laughs> well, I mean, but the NIMBYs themselves are also hippies. Well, that's Every, yeah. everyone's a hippie. You you can be both. Yeah, I yeah, mean. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that definitely is the case. It, it, it Berkeley's culture is very unique, and I understand why people want to preserve that. Sure. Um, it's it's very dynamic. Uh, Berkeley, you know, you know, like my family grew up there, and you know, the working class culture in that town really is, you know, sort of. It's 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 its own thing. It's not even connected to Oakland per se. It it's really is. It, it was unique until it was largely pushed out. I mean, unfortunately, when my parents moved to Vallejo, um, when I was helping them move, like the hilarious part was, I noticed a bunch of like old Berkeley neighbors living in Vallejo now. And when we were moving in, we would say hi to them, like, "Hey, yeah, we're here now." <laughs> you know, it's like, "Oh yeah," and, and we would identify each other by what street in Berkeley we're from. You'd see like a middle class African American family across the street in Vallejo in the suburban home, and you'd be like, "Oh hey, we're from Spalding. Where are you from?" Oh Dwight. Hey, hey, what's going that's, on? You know, it's like that's the it's it's fun, but it's it's really disturbing because now our urban core is for largely rich people, and that's unfortunate. I mean, you see maps of the diaspora of people leaving California because they can't afford it anymore, and they they do bunch on the same cities because largely it is you want to be part of a social network, and that's that, our working class too. Yeah. I mean, that's the people who need it. Like, I always say, you know, people get mad at me when I don't necessarily prioritize other quote unquote progressive initiatives as much as I do housing in terms of my voting. And I say, well, the reason why is because if people can't afford to live here, all your other progressive stuff doesn't matter. Like, yeah, single payer healthcare is awesome. All that's awesome. But if the folks who need it can't live in California to use it, I mean, what are you doing? You're making a nice state for rich people. Yeah, you need but, the cost of living down but like, yeah, across I mean, the board. Yeah, yeah. But like that doesn't help, you know, uh, a middle income, working class Latino family that has to move to Nevada because California is too expensive. Yeah. Like And I and this is the kind of stuff, I mean, if if uh if you want to see your uh your voice on on a regular basis ranting about stuff, you're very active on Twitter. <laughs> at least uh, trying not to be. Well, you at the moment you're very active on Twitter, uh, and like yeah, this is very similar to like the uh, assembly race between Javanka Beckles and Buffy Wicks, uh, just a bit ago. Uh, yeah, it's it was a progressive voice, and I think Javanka was saying a lot of really exciting stuff, but she wasn't really saying anything about housing other than the fact that public housing is the best way in the long term, which is, you know, it's it's kind of saying we shouldn't do anything now. I mean, I got rent to pay next month. <laughs> look, yeah. look, the Javanka Beckles versus Buffy Wicks thing was very interesting. Um, so I wrote this whole like Twitter thread about like explaining why I voted or was intending to vote for Buffy. And in large part, I explained I like preference my statements because strangely, like when the race started in the summer, like it did not feel very vitriolic. It felt like a very interesting you know, set of competing ideas. Well, assembly races aren't usually yeah. huge. It's very weird this got so big. Yeah. Um, it, it was really strange. And I was like, I mean, I actually didn't know who to vote for. Mm-hmm. I was leaning on Javanka only because I knew who she was. I didn't know who Buffy Wicks was. Javanka Beckles, I learned about um, from high school because in high school, I remember when the Chevron fires had occurred. Mm-hmm. My auntie lived in the Iron Triangle, which is a neighborhood in Richmond, and in many ways was... I believe, affected by those fires. She had some respiratory issues, and I didn't like that. And so, you know, I was very antagonistic towards Chevron. Uh, it's it's a statement to major environmental racism. And um, when, as sort of a PR stunt, Chevron gave our class a bunch of, like, tablets or iPads. I can't remember which one it was. And we were told to say, like, a thank you letter or, or give a thank you letter to Chevron. <laughs> And, and this is at Berkeley High School. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 it was like 
it wasn't like corporate submission. We weren't told like do it or else. It was more like just you know if you want to write a letter, be nice to the folks who gave you a tablet. And sure. I'm like, yeah, no. So I'm I'm going to talk crap about Chevron, <laughs> and so. Um, I blasted them for it, and I got hooked up with a bunch of Richmond progressives, and I learned that one of the city council members at the time who was opposed to Chevron was Javanka Beckles. And so that's when I learned about her, and I thought, oh, this is great. Um, and, I mean, I never thought that much about her again, but, I mean, yeah, you know. And I and I lived in, you know, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I, I was I was definitely, because of that background, just more inclined to vote for Beckles. Um, she had all the progressive uh, initiatives that I supported, you know, single payer, all that. So I thought that was really great. But that was different. That was back in, you know, the early 2010s. Here we are in the late 2010s, and I'm very housing oriented. And so I reexamined their platforms. And uh, Buffy Wicks had some really good housing platforms. She wanted to, like, reorient parking lots for affordable housing. She wanted to build denser housing uh, near transit stops, particularly in wealthy neighborhoods. She cited Rockridge, where she lives. That's a big deal. She's throwing away votes by doing that, right? <laughs> Rock Rockridge, it's it's. I mean, I'm, I I only see a few things, but people post like Rockridge started like back in the twenties as this is a neighborhood where we have laws against Asians and blacks. Yeah, you can be assured of having all white living in Rockridge, and I mean that that legacy still pervades through the class discrimination today. Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure I, I've seen like old posters of Rockridge saying like, please live here. No Chinese live here. It's a it's a very like it, it, I've never felt like people in Rockridge are racist, but it, I always say it's like Rockridge is like an extension of like Elmwood and Claremont from Berkeley into Oakland. It's like it's like little Berkeley in Oakland. It's, it's basically what it is. I mean, you don't have to be personally racist to be part of an exclusionary suburb, yeah. which is de facto racist. Yeah. And so you can't build housing there, which, you know, much to the joy of the homeowners who are collecting a lot of equity about that. And so there is a sort of a cultural statement to not want to continue that and to support building housing the same way we do at West Oakland and MacArthur in a very affluent neighborhood. Um, And so I thought it was bold of Wicks to say we should build housing there. And unfortunately, Beckles, uh, her housing platform, I read it and I went through it in detail. And I said, you know, I'm I'm here with an open mind. I'm not going to, you know, be making any kind of assumptions. And it was largely just like, yeah, let's build a lot of social housing. But the number she was giving was insufficient relative to the potentially millions of people who want to live in the Bay Area. I was like, well, that's not really good. And then on top of that, she spent a lot of her uh, time uh, saying that the reason why we had a housing crisis was because of developers and it's just difficult to say that when you look at the vast majority of the East Bay that's not been touched by development. Yeah. Like it's not meanie head developers that, you know, homes in North Berkeley cost millions of dollars. It's because you have a lot of job demand regionally. Yeah. And those folks are bidding on that. I mean, it's, it's a very weird part of the progressive, you know, it's, it's the progressive agenda could be. Okay, let's let's make sure we have single payer health care. You know, how do we pay for it? We're not sure yet, but we'll we'll figure out the tax revenue. Let's make social housing. We need to figure out the tax revenue. But then, if you talk about like places that explicitly ban apartments because they don't want lower income residents here, like shouldn't that be a slam dunk? Let's let's end apartment bans. Like you don't say let's kill Obamacare because we don't have single payer. 
Yeah. Like, that's what I feel like people say when they say, like, no to, like, market rate housing. Well, it's kind of like saying, until we get UK-style housing, let's ban private doctors. Right. Let's actually make it illegal to practice medicine. Or, or not, I mean, to be generous, they're not even saying ban it, but let's not make any serious effort to revoke the ban. Well, let's not expand it to make yeah. it less bad. Yeah, it's like we all, most people live in non-subsidized housing. I don't know how else to say it. And so, you know, like, I just, I, I don't, I don't really get it. Um, but it's, it's how, I mean, I get it. You know, I used to be the same way. I used to think that the new apartments were bad when I was a kid and it's different because it, you know, it's different. So it's scary. It's the source of all our problems. And I understand why they feel that way. Yeah. But I mean, the math is simple. You've, people are not as antagonistic towards private jobs as they are private housing. Yeah. And cause that brings in, you know, sales tax revenue and city revenue and it pays for all of our streets and roads and stuff. And so because people are not antagonistic towards that thing, it kind of runs rampant. We have, you know, massive seven to one, eight to one, nine to one jobs, housing ratios, um, and people don't care. But when it comes to a housing development, oh, suddenly it's, you know, freak out. And I understand for cultural reasons, wanting as, as someone who's very strong about desegregation, because I grew up in a segregated area. I, I grew up in a place where, you know, black people live there because they were allowed to live there. Um, I've always been conscious of that history. That's why I've been a huge advocate of building, you know, denser market rate housing, especially in affluent suburbs or affluent areas and city cores, because that's who's kind of tried to keep their way out of what's sort of the inherent solution to our crisis, which is building more housing. They said, oh, let's do it in the poor neighborhoods. Almost every, you know, priority development area plan in most cities puts housing development in lower income neighborhoods. Yeah. I don't think it causes displacement, the development itself, unless it's an explicit like eviction and teardown. In most cases, it's not. Uh, The displacement largely comes from the commercial element that, you know, spikes prices locally for demand. Um, But, you know, I've been a huge advocate of saying, well, let's go ahead and build it in the rich neighborhoods, too. I mean, most of the poor neighborhoods are already upzoned. Yeah. You know, so we want to do it in the wealthy neighborhoods, too. And, and there's not as much of a calling or there's not as much of a demand for this thing because I feel like people are so, so centered around the status quo. You know, you kind of move to the Bay Area and that's kind of how it always been. You know, Alamo Square has always been Alamo Square. Berkeley Hills has always been Berkeley Hills. And so seldom do people think like that's where the rich people live. That's where the poor people live. Just you know, the way of get life. Them. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of how it is. Yeah. They, they spend more time attacking a new condo, whereas I, as someone who's a native, grew up looking at the hills going, you know, these people like this is this is who I this is like that. That's not like the background imagery to me. That's not a painting, you know, back there. That's like serious segregation, because one of the most enlightening experiences I ever had was I used to live in East Oakland with my uh, dad. And, you know, it's it's East Oakland. It's got a lot of crime. It's got a lot of poverty. And what my dad did in middle school was so that I could attend a middle school in Berkeley. He moved me to an apartment in North Berkeley. And it was a very life-changing experience. Like just moved you? No, we moved. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's not like a boarding school. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, no, for sure, no. Uh, but we we moved. And it was very it was very interesting to learn just the socioeconomic and cultural differences between, you know, East Oakland, where, you know, oftentimes there was trash on the street. There was like, you know, busted windshields on the curb. Like that's as common as like leaves, you know, um, glass on the ground. And North Berkeley, where, I mean, you know, the trash gets picked up. uh, The libraries are, you know, well-funded. The schools are stellar and they're diverse. Um, And so, I mean, not just diverse and like having a lot of, 
you know, kids of color, but also like a lot of white kids too. And I said, you know, it's not really fair that this hillside up here, which is largely full of, you know, white and uh, affluent Asian residents can have all these resources, yet diverse areas like mines, which were historically black and has a lot of working class, lower income Latinos and Asians do not in East Oakland. And I was very adamant about making sure that we could share that kind of resource. And unfortunately, you know, it's only gotten worse. I mean, back in the 70s, they had court cases to say we shouldn't have rich and poor school districts. Let's redistribute at the state level. Yeah. And they did it. But you can see, like, it doesn't actually oh, end no. the privilege of rich rich school. school. No, no. They just put their kids in private schools, the rich people. <laughs> or they have, like, these private, you know, f- fundraising drives where, yeah. like, oh, the, you know, the billionaires live in your city. You know, they put some pocket change in. <laughs> school districts are probably worse than zoning in terms of segregation impacts. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, zoning is used as a tool to 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 enforce school segregation. I mean, when 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 dark skinned kids start going into predominantly white schools, I mean, they start to flip out. I mean, and this is a big deal with like you know when you have dense city cores. How do you make sure the density cores have good schools? And yeah. usually they don't, largely because. If you're well off, you abandon the public schools. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's San Francisco. A lot of the white kids get sent to private schools. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's across the board. I, I mean, not, not to derail this, but look up look up Finland's uh, school bans on private school tuition. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah, and I mean, Javanka Beckles wanted to have a moratorium on charter schools too. Um, I, and I understand all that, but but getting back to Beckles, like I I thought that. What she was saying about housing was wait for my social housing plan. She didn't have a specific plan other than like taxing vacant properties, which, which is which is a good idea by itself. Yeah, it's but cool. It's, it's not going to change. But that's not doing whole, jack, yeah. and and it's not going to desegregate anything unless you address the land use patterns. And this is what I was going to say earlier when I said hold on for a minute. Yeah, um, I grew up in San Pablo. Like I lived in San Pablo with my family as a little child. And I've always been very conscious of the intensive segregation between Richmond and Marin County because they're right beside each other. Like Mm -hmm. they have a bay between each other and there's a San Rafael bridge. And if you see a service worker in Marin County, if you see someone picking up trash in Marin County, a city worker, if you see a nanny in Marin County, all those folks live in Richmond. Yeah. And they drive over the Richmond Bridge every day to serve wealthy white people in this exclusive suburb. And that's like that's like that's like a real congested commute hub. Like and, they're, they're, and, and they're all driving on Highway 101 getting gas from Chevron that's polluting <laughs> Richmond. Yeah. And so I've just been like I've hated that. Just like I hated, you know, the Berkeley Hills having so much affluence while the Flatlands had nothing. I hated that. I was so conscious of that. And when Beckel says that she'll defer to local communities in terms of whether they want to build housing or not, all I'm hearing from there is, okay, so affluent neighborhoods are not going to build Jack. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're not going to. Why would they do it? They could do it now if they wanted to. They're not going to do it. I mean, it seems like the very the very lowest you can do is saying like, okay, we're we're afraid of what happens in our you know poorest communities with gentrification, but let's at least upzone Rock Ridge, Palo Alto, Marin County. Yeah, you know? if that's the argument, then like, yeah, yeah, and I, and then she did like a, a follow up and. What's that thing called? Jacobin? Uh, Jacobin Magazine? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, where, where she kind of like threw a sentence out there saying, you know what, we'll use state powers to sort of encourage those communities that oppose newcomers. Really, it's about opposing segregation. 
to to not do that anymore and i'm like i'm glad you said that after the fact and that's good yeah I, no, I, she I, must have been reading my twitter thread I, you know. yeah <laughs> it, it, a thought influencer in the twitter sphere uh daryl owens uh but yeah it's it's i, I don't want to hold anyone's like if someone has a blind spot and they evolve i think it's yeah. I, I, absolutely everyone should be forgiven i would say good you used to have you know a blind spot now you get it great welcome aboard i don't want past grievances to ever hold anyone back and i i really see a lot of potential that the progressive you know the progressive mainstream will say you know of course you don't you don't hold up exclusionary zoning i mean you know and and there was a lot of debate and i thought some folks got too disrespectful when they started saying that you know beckles is just she's just saying this to show for affluent white homeowners in the berkeley hills and i said stop that that's not true I think a lot of Beckles's housing opinion just comes from the fact that she's from Richmond. And mm. if I were from Richmond and I lived there my whole life, I would probably feel the same way. I mean, Richmond's like a suburban working class neighborhood. You don't necessarily see the need for housing density. I mean, I, I grew up there not necessarily thinking that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, she, she felt that the Richmond Annex Project, which was a project near the very southern part of Richmond, an affordable housing project was, you know, too dense. She opposed um, SBA 27, which was a state housing bill, uh, upzoning bill, uh, on the grounds that it would not have let you know communities deal with like parking requirements. That was on her policy platform, and I'm like, I, I get it. You're from suburban Richmond, and I get that's kind of your thing, but that's a serious blind spot to me. And when yeah. Buffy Wick says I'm going to upzone Rockridge and build housing there so that it doesn't all go in West Oakland, I'm like, well, that's my housing candidate. Yeah, and, but I mean everything else with. Uh, Beckles was great. I mean, I, I loved her her statements on Prop 13. Um, Delane Easton was the same way. We need to reform Prop 13 and make companies like Chevron pay more, or yeah. hopefully just get them out of Richmond. This was she was great. I mean, like I didn't take this lightly. I, I liked both of the candidates. They're very well, um, uh, well educated, thoughtful, uh, intelligent women. Yeah, and I, I think if there's anything, they were they were kind of the media wanted to make them say, okay, Javanka is Bernie Sanders, Buffy Wicks is Hillary Clinton, and they weren't. Well, I think that was a lot of Javanka's supporters, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, they they not that the media was saying that. I think they were just. I mean, that that, that, that was a way that it they helps. Were, it helps it, them to. It's a framing device. I made a prediction that turned out to be totally wrong. I thought Javanka Beckles was going to win eighty fifteen, and the reason why I thought that was because. I live in Berkeley where there's a bunch of like granola hippies up here who are sure. like major like Bernie Sanders people. Yeah. And, you know, they like throwing their political signs everywhere and it's against the law and stuff. And <laughs> and like, you know, I mean, I that that Bernie crowd up here in Berkeley, I, I thought, you know, OK, so definitely Javonka is going to win. But I forgot that that's not necessarily the majority of the people. So I think that there was sort of a cultural feeling of like Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton 2.0 strikes back here. Yeah. And, you know, they call, they called Buffy the Bernie Slayer because allegedly her job or supposedly, I mean, I, I didn't care enough to look into it. I, I'm not disputing it, really. Her job was to stifle, supposedly, as they characterized it, progressive initiatives in the Obama administration. I don't know. She worked on the Affordable Health Care Act. Hmm. Um, and I know it's not single-payer health care, but it's better than no care. It disrupted a terrible status quo. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's, that's, that's kind of – and that's sort of the, like, policy-specific pragmatism that appeals to me. I understand that we can't get single-payer in tomorrow, and we just can't financially speaking. I mean, we pay a lot of our federal taxes 
to the federal government. That's why, I mean, you can point out that California is the fifth largest economy in the world, but we're not a sovereign nation. We are a state. We pay money to the federal government. And look at the new tax thing, killing the uh, state and local taxes exemption. That's going to make it even harder. Yeah, you don't, I mean, you can't do that. You have to work within, you have to work with what you got. Yeah. When I, when I have scraps in my fridge, I can't, you know, wish I had a cake. <laughs> I, I'm not, but it, it's good to aim. I don't, I got to emphasize that as much as I think that's the case, I don't think that having voices around that are very idealistic like that is bad. That's good. Because if we only had pragmatists and realists, all we would have is very, very normally increasing, you, you yeah. know, that, that kind of policy. It's good to have folks pushing us in the right direction on where we need to go. But you you don't always want them steering. No, no, absolutely. And I think it's worth saying that Jovanka now has much better opinions on housing than Bernie Sanders has ever said. Oh, yeah. I mean, Bernie Bernie Sanders is from Vermont. That's like the Marin (laughs) of the East Coast. Yeah. They they do have a cool thing. They do have the Community Land Trust up in Burlington, uh, but like they don't have any real cities (laughs) like they have here. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, saying that we want to attack Prop 13 and fund subsidized housing, that's, that's a big, bold vision. And let's see if actually there will be a consensus. Here's the thing. If Javanka was running for U.S. Congress or U.S. Senate over Buffy, I would have voted for Javanka. Yeah, I, that no, makes a lot of sense. Because because that's where that funding mechanisms, those subsidies actually matter. Sure. That's where we need socialists and, you know, anti-capitalists at. At the, at the state legislator level where it's more specifically about localized land use, that's where... You know, not voting for 100 percent affordable housing because it's too dense or caring about parking requirements is, you know, big thumbs down. But I mean, I, I volunteered for Bernie Sanders's campaign and he's like a huge NIMBY. So, I mean, no. it's not that's that's the state, the federal level stuff. Like I encourage Ivanka Beckles to run for Senate or Congress. Cool. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's it's just so many people have a lot of good stuff, but housing is a blind spot. And I, I think we're going to move past this. I think it's a transient thing. But you're talking about, yeah, I guess the state level versus local level. Uh, yeah, the East Bay, there's a lot of actually, I think, uh, exciting stuff happening in the Berkeley level. But I guess talk about what you think the future is for Sacramento versus all of our cities, because a lot of other places, uh, they're not moving in a great direction, certainly in my backyard here. I mean, so here's what's happening. Sacramento is definitely becoming a lot more explicitly pro-state preemption of you know housing and land use for sure. They're realizing at this point that like the, the status quo is not working. It threatens the economic viability of California to not be sufficiently building housing yeah. relative to their economic output. They get that. Um, I mean, for as much as people hate the tech companies, they're the golden goose that are funding everything right I now. I hate the tech companies, man. I can't stand them. I think I think they're awful. But yeah, I mean, the it, fact is, is that a lot of folks are employed directly or indirectly through them, and we don't want to... I mean, it's not about pushing them out per se, but there are folks who want that money, and you have severe economic inequality that in much part stems from housing. Yeah. And... and Folks are giving away like well over sixty to seventy percent of their incomes for you know just paying rent. Um, and you look at who suffers. If you look at a place like here, Palo Alto doesn't take the housing burden; they just get all upside, no downside. East Palo Alto, like their you know their entire world is changing, and they're suffering for. Well, it. Well, they don't get any housing burden because the working class people are in yeah are in East Palo Alto. Like the the affluent suburbs are not affected because. Yeah. We don't have any people of concern there. They have the right to use local control. And unfortunately, we have this model now where cities are encouraged to collect as much sales tax revenue from commercial and office development as possible and don't see any upside to building residential. 
in many ways, they see it as a downside because it brings in voters they don't like. We saw this in Brisbane where that big uh, Baylands project happened. And the, the city staff was like pretty straightforward. Like, yeah, I mean, the commercial makes you know a lot of sense. We can get more money for this. But I mean, what economic benefit do we get from more residents? They had an explicit chart on yeah. if you have zero residents versus 100% residents. <laughs> and like they just lose so much money with all residents versus no residents. Yeah. Of course you're going to pick no residents. So of course, Brisbane wants to be basically a financial district where people commute into their town, which causes sprawl causes suburban sprawl it causes segregation that means all of our working class that can't afford to live in the urban core live in Antioch Vallejo they live in Pittsburgh now yeah it causes uh, traffic um, because Brisbane's not very transit accessible except for Caltrain Baylands but that's a terrible station at the moment because Caltrain is not upgraded yet and that means people are going to be driving and causing congestion I mean, it's just a lose-lose for the environment. It's a lose-lose for the, you know, the goodwill and 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 the, the living standards of our working-class folks. But I guess it's a win if you are housing safe and you live in Brisbane. And if you are San Jose, who has more how like has more residential units than jobs, they are very precarious. As or far- if you're San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco's economic policies inflict so much damage on the East Bay. Oakland is basically San Francisco's bedroom community. And San Francisco's pushed out much of its own working class because of its rampant office expansion. I mean, the Central Soma plan had a terrible, abysmal, like, I think it started out at nine to one. I think they negotiated it down to seven or six to one, but it was like seven or six to one jobs for every one unit of housing. And you have to ask yourself, well, where are those other six going to live? Per yeah. job. I mean, there's thousands of them. So where are they going to live? And the answer is they're going to live in Oakland. They're going to live in the East Bay. They're going to live in working class neighborhoods and push people out. And that's what this is all about. It's about making sure that you're as pro-housing as you are pro-commercial, if not more so. I mean, that's something I hear you, know, you and others talk a lot about is the fact you need to treat the Bay Area as an interconnected system, and especially SF and Oakland. Yeah, SF needs to lose its power, man. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 weird. I mean, they're just like they're just like throwing garbage over the wall. Yeah, like I wouldn't mind SF if they were all insular and being stupid, but. They, the, the economic damage they inflict on the East Bay is horrible. And the economic damage that the peninsula inflicts on SF is horrible. So, I mean, it's kind of a it's a, it's a very vicious cycle. Is, is a place like the East Bay, are they able to do much without going to the state level? Or are they able to say, OK, we're going to become big and strong ourselves and be the we're also going to have all the jobs? Well, or is it just not going to happen? Well, no, because they, 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 they're not opposed to what San Francisco does because – because it's wrong and displaces our working class communities. I mean, civically, the, the the government leaders in the East Bay are opposed to what San Francisco does because they're just not in on it. They just, they just they want the capital for themselves. They they I mean, that's all it is. I mean, in a lot of ways, like when you have this extra demand, it hurts the the people who are most desperate. But it actually is money in the pockets of a lot more people. It's money. They want the jobs. Housing doesn't bring in money. It just brings in votes that you have to appeal to. Yeah. So, of course, they don't want it. I mean, Piedmont's been doing that forever. Well, not, not in terms of jobs, but in terms of keeping people out that they don't like. So, I mean, that's that's what this is all about, and that's why I get involved in <laughs> housing activism. So, oh, so and, you, and you started early. Like you, you now are serving in the Berkeley Housing Commission. Yes, the Housing Advisory Commission. We recommend uh, funds for affordable housing. We deal, we deal with the management of affordable housing. Um, in the city of Berkeley, and and basically we basically report to the city council as to what we're going to do. Well, um, what kind of budget you got there? Um, well, it depends. I mean, we're bringing in uh, a couple million for our recent measure O and P, um, but our housing trust fund actually is kind of empty right now because we spent 
most of it on just one affordable housing project that's kind of been a disaster and um now they want to try to build like subterranean parking to make it like pencil out and i'm just like oh man but it's 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 what happens i mean when you don't well, rely well, on a, how does how does subterranean parking make it pencil f- out fees huh like like parking fees you can you can charge people for parking and that'll that'll provide some kind oh, so of Oh, it'll subsidy. be paid parking. Yeah. At least not free parking. Oh, it's not free parking, no. Oh, God. But, I mean, that's the problem. And a lot of this would be solved if Berkeley just had a consistent, clear inclusionary zoning rate. Um, and inclusionary zoning is, of course, when we mandate private developers build affordable housing. It's one of the easiest ways to get affordable housing. But, I mean... It's a form of value capture. Yeah, it is. And it's a great system, uh, short of an explicit subsidy um, that we don't have because the federal government is bad. And, unfortunately, we have the LIHTC style of uh, doing affordable housing which is better than nothing but it's not the 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 redevelopment era we used to have i mean not the not the urban redevelopment era but you know like just just actor, money to money do, just, money to just, do fun get money from hud yeah uh, grants so i mean inclusionary zoning is the easiest way to do it but and, and, and they are there is a lot of good progressive initiative to have like good clear inclusionary rates but I mean, folks try to play games and make it as high as possible to stop them from penciling. It's a game of chicken. You know, yeah, you, you yeah. Try yeah. to make it as high as you can, and if you lose, it's like, well, try again next time. But then you have a huge failure, which I, is you didn't build this thing. Like if we just make the inclusionary rate fifty percent, like no, <laughs> I mean because it like it sounds nice, but I don't live in fifty percent. I live yeah. in like twenty five units being built at this project. Yeah, and. The reality is, is that if you make it so high that nothing pencils, I mean, you can have a nice percentage, but that doesn't help working class people. I used to work in an affordable housing developer and the wait list for affordable housing for just this one project we were doing in Walnut Creek. Um, or actually, no, the one project we were doing in Alameda. This is one project. Um, it's for an affordable housing developer. Obviously, most working class people probably don't even know about it. How many total units? Um, it was like a couple, I think it was like 40, it was like, yeah, 40, 40 to 50 units. Pretty modest size. Yeah. 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 10,000 applicants. Wow. I mean like. And they're going to, and, and I've heard like the, the, the public housing wait lists were far higher. Um, but, uh. I mean, I hear people on these wait lists wait literally 10, 15, 20 years. For 45 units. Yeah. 10,000. And it's 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 just this it's Kafka esque system. They they sign up for all these different waiting lists. You have to remain eligible and then wait 10, 15 years. It's, and it's, then probably not even get it. I mean, by oh, then yeah. you, you have to leave. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, who, getting who affordable most- housing is harder than getting into like Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, it's 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 hard. And yeah. and so we have to you know maximize every method, every tool we have, which is inclusionary zoning at a at a good percentage, that pencils the most amount of units. Period. And uh, subsidies required to get it done, because there's like this like stupid like, man, it's just so frustrating. There, there there are people out there who demand who don't care about the apartment ban, who don't care about downzoning, but then want the highest percentage possible. Like you can't ask for more affordable housing subsidy and then make housing illegal. Is is it like is that's it, no housing? Is it wrong to say that it's sour grapes mentality of saying you know if if housing is bad for people you know in my income bracket I just don't want to see market rate housing because it makes me upset to see it. It's, I mean, yeah, that's part of it. I think with a lot of like um, anti gentrification activists, I think that's a lot of what they do. The ones that are like genuinely poor and working class, yeah. But then I mean, I think consciously like that makes me mad seeing. 
fancy new condos that I can't afford per se. Yeah. But I mean, it also makes me mad walking through North Berkeley looking at big mansions I'll never be able to afford. And, and there's symptoms of the system. I mean, people are building these luxury condos and mansions because, you know, the they're sy- profitable. <laughs> they're, they're, they're profitable. And it's not because they're, they just want to be mean. It's not, I mean, yeah. But then on the other hand, I mean, should housing be based on the profit of a, of a individual private firm, it's. I mean, why should it? No, <laughs> exactly. it shouldn't be. But, but you to tomorrow, a, I have to pay rent. Yeah, you have to do a lot of systemic change to make that happen. And we're like, I mean, we can't even repeal Prop Thirteen. Yeah, I mean, telling me that like housing shouldn't be financialized, of course. Yeah, housing should just be public and distributed. Housing but should not be an investment. Yeah, of course it of should course. be investment. But not doing anything doesn't stop it from being. An investment, not doing anything doesn't stop the enrichment of banks through housing development. You're just shifting. People act like if you stop developers from building housing, that takes the profit out of housing. No, it just transitions the profit to homeowners (laughs) or property owners who get free equity for no reason. And that's what's happening right now. Yeah, exactly. And and you you talk about like, oh, let's take the profit out of housing. Let's fight this market rate development. The same firm is going to buy up an old crappy apartment you know, evict everybody, jack up the rates, you know, and, and still make a lot of money without building something. Or just hold on to some homes and make a lot of money without building something. Yeah, I mean, people people are buying houses in Palo Alto with cash in hand. Yeah. I mean, man, it's a killing to be a property owner in Palo Alto right now. I, there's there's conflation of you have to build to make money in housing. No, you can make a lot of profits without building a damn thing. I think most people make profits without building a damn thing. That's where yeah. most real estate profits come from. It's not from developers, if yeah. I remember correctly. It, I, I don't but it, it's always been a talking point, you know. Developers are big and bad, and that's I mean that's that's Bay Area history. That's not. I mean, I think they are, but I think it's yeah, a very, it's are. a very different question than should we build more stuff. I mean, but homeowners make me mad too. I mean, the thing about <laughs> the thing about inclusionary rate that I think is the biggest flaw with it is it only affects new construction. Like the fact that everything that's old, you're never gonna put an ex- inclusionary rate in someone's house. So. Yeah, I mean, can I get an inclusionary rate for the Berkeley Hills? <laughs> yeah, you exactly. Make half the hills affordable housing. Go to every mansion and say, okay, I get four rooms at your place. That's where most of the wealth is. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't. I, it's it's about in part people get mad when I say this, but it's just the truth, man. A lot of it is just it's different, and so I don't like it. Yeah, and like McDonald's, well, you like is- getting the same thing you got last time. I understand that change but- is threatening, and if you are someone who you are facing the fact I'm going to have to move to Nevada, I'm actually very sympathetic to that. If you are a millionaire homeowner in you know in the hills and you're worried about shadows, I'm a lot less sympathetic. And it's so frustrating because you walk through these neighborhoods in Berkeley where you see these dingbat apartments, these ticky-tacky apartments that we now consider too dense, that that have nothing, that are rent-controlled and have working-class immigrants in them. And you know that that was explicitly banned, yeah, in part for the profits of homeowners, and you go, I mean, why would you defend that? If we had more of those and they weren't banned, we'd have a lot more working class people in our city. Yeah. But we don't. And so, like, I understand that, like, we don't want to wait 20, 40 years for the filtering effect to happen. The UC Berkeley Urban Displacement Project says don't do that. Yeah. It says do both. Yeah. Let it, it will filter over time as everything else does. But in the meanwhile, build subsidized housing through inclusionary and through specific subsidies. It's not terribly complicated. I mean, that's that's the dumbest meme out there, but it's it's pervasive and it's worth just saying. People who believe, oh, you should actually end apartment bans, make it legal to build apartments, you know, that's the same thing as saying we should only do free market developments. Like, no, yeah, you, yeah, I don't you don't have to choose. I don't understand where that comes from. Like, I... It, 
I don't I don't get if they really think that or that's just a caricature. I think people affordable, like to straw man their opponents. Affordable housing abides by the zoning laws. I don't know where people get this impression it doesn't. I worked for an affordable housing developer where I had to scout out places for yeah. affordable housing. And when there was a single family zoning code, no. Yeah. And and like I, how plausible it is that Sacramento will make a rule saying if it is a nonprofit affordable housing developer, they don't have to abide by zoning. That would cause a huge outrage. And and we should do that actually. We should it's a great idea. I mean, I think I think there should be we can we can have I think zoning codes here's a compromise. Because land values plays a part in this. Land values does make it expensive to acquire properties for affordable housing developers. It's not as big of an impairment as say uh the construction, uh, yeah, uh, permitting or construction yeah. costs or labor costs, but I mean, sure, acquisition plays a part. It's 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 more uh, stagnant. And it's, we we always know what it's going to be usually, but okay. So here's a form of value capture you can do. You can make it legal for affordable housing developers to build where they want at what levels they want everywhere, and then you can have like zoning codes for private developers. Yeah, uh, why not? Why not? Why not do that? Because, because homeowners the are going to flip. Gonna flip. Because yeah. the same people who just killed Prop Ten are going to kill that too. <laughs> and it's like it's like that's what's so frustrating about it is that there's this silly like f- f- faux fake quasi not real fight between rent control and building new housing. It's both. If you want, in order for rent control to be effective, as someone who voted for Prop Ten and canvassed for it, if you want it to be effective, it needs to apply to new housing. Not the day after, of course, because then no one builds. But like twenty years after, yeah. Because all the apartments that working class people live in that are now banned under much of the existing zoning code, the rent control helps. It keeps them in their homes. The Stanford study said that about rent control. They said, well, it cuts down on building housing. Yeah, but they also said it was a very good uh, tool to stabilize families. So how do we get the best? How do we cut out the bad part, which is that it cuts down on building housing? And how do we get more uh, by ensuring uh, family stability and tenant stability? I know you stop the apartment ban and you impose rent control. It's not, it's not, I don't, I don't, yeah. this, this should not be controversial, but it is. Yeah, I think if more people just said, like, you don't have to choose a side, there's a lot of good solutions that have all the best parts of everything. And it's, it's dumb. I mean, I think every day, like, it may not seem that way when you go on Twitter and look around. I think the conversation is getting less dumb every day. I think a lot of people are showing the fact they can, they actually can f- pick out the good parts of everything. And I think there's a lot, a lot of less tribal stupid stuff. And I think especially now the, the election's over, I yeah. think there's a new start to kind of do some good stuff. SF's always been tribal and it always will be. I mean, it's it's good to like waste brain cells on. But yeah, in general, I would say that the housing debate in general is going in a good direction. And even in, even as tribal as SF is, I mean, that Prop C stuff was very good. Yeah. No, and East, oh, absolutely. And East Bay for everyone. You endorsed uh, Prop, uh, uh, Prop 10 over there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a no-brainer. Look, look. There was lots of problems with Prop Ten. There I didn't, was, I didn't yeah. like the fact that it it banned any kind of state preemption on rent control. Um, I didn't like the fact that it was proposed during a midterm by a self-obsessed uh, billionaire who takes AIDS patients' money and doesn't use it for what it's supposed to be used for. Because <laughs> he wants I, to see the Hollywood Hills. Yeah, just a real yeah, creep. yeah. An anti-housing, uh, borderline eugenicist. I don't like any of that. Um, but if I can get Costa Hawkins repealed, I'm going to do it. Yeah, and. For those who don't know, that's the ban on rent control, and I'm I'm so there was a lot of debate among Yimbies, particularly in San Francisco, about like, well, it cuts down on housing, so it's bad. And I'm like, I I don't even th- this idea. See, this is see even some it's even, weird... even some urbanists get into this like silly little little tribal game where they act like well, NIMBY 
suburbs are going to use rent control as an anti-housing mechanism to block development. I mean, I am worried about that. I mean, but... I mean, I've been to policy council where they... Yeah, I know know Palo Alto tried it. I know, but, (laughs) but come on. Downzoning is a far more effective tool than imposing rent control. Which why, would, why not both? <laughs> I mean, sure, but but like that actually hurts folks who vote landlords in their cities, and a lot of cities would not do that. They don't want to piss sure. off their landlords. No, I Th- think those that's are true. the people who vote. That's and true. landlords are crazy. I mean, we saw what happened with the um, the bombing at the uh, the office. I mean, that was. Yeah, well, let's or, or, let's wait for more information to come out. Okay, okay. That, we, yeah, we shouldn't assume that, that was landlords, but I mean, but I'll say this: it's very consistent with the kind of nutso behavior yeah. you see at any random city council, where people say like, "Oh, you know, if you attack landlords with this, it's basically like Mao killing." Landlords. Yeah, I mean, city 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 council members care a lot about landlords, so I believe that it's a lot more likely to just ban They're housing. Very well organized. Yeah, yeah, than it is to <laughs> impose rent control. Yeah, um, but I mean, I'm willing to have that fight and stop that if it means protecting working class families, because I have rent control. And it's great. Yeah. I, I don't have to worry. Look, this is literally December 1st. December will be the last month I have to pay my existing rent rate, and then it'll go up probably at the end of the year. Mm. But because I have rent control, I know it won't go up that high. It'll, because, go, it'll go up only $20. And people will say, well, you're selfish. I mean, come on. My landlord's making a killing. Yeah. He's, he's making a killing. He's not a bad person, but he, he's fine. There's no reason to raise rents at this point other than to make more profit. If a building is you know over 20 years old, why should an increase in land values mean the landlord gets more yeah, money? There's that. no good reason. Screw that. Take it back. I mean, I th- yeah. <laughs> so it's and I have the psychological power to sleep at night and know full well when January comes, it'll just be a twenty dollar rent hike. Yeah. I went to Oakland High School and talked to students about rent control. A lot of them actually didn't seem to know. Did a lot of them were making like weird econ one hundred and one arguments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're high schoolers. They're like, sure, they're, you know. they haven't read but, Henry George. Yeah, yet. yeah, exactly. We'll get there. There you go. Um, but the, the kid, one girl came up to me. This like Vietnamese girl, and she's got a bunch of uh, uh, family members who are immigrants who live in a newer development, which is why we need more new development. Past nineteen ninety five. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was like a two thousand era development. Sure. Um, and 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 she says like my neighbors got like kicked out over a like I think she said three hundred percent rent hike increase. Yeah. I mean, like, whoa. And she's scared, and she doesn't know what's going to happen to her family. I can't look at that little girl and say, don't worry, I'll I'll stop the closest thing we have to protection right now, which is rent control, and just build a bunch of housing, and in 20 years, 30 years, it'll filter down maybe. Yeah. I can't, I can't say that. I can say, we'll do that in the long run, but the short run is getting price controls on your building. That's that's I that's that's the humane thing to do, if, especially you know, because we already have price controls for landlords. Prop thirteen makes sure their costs don't go up. So yeah. it's just absolutely immoral that they can pass along these you know these rent increases when their costs are fixed. It's insane. It's just ridiculous. And so I mean that's that's how I was. And I, and, and the prop ten thing wasn't even that controversial for me. I wasn't debating it. But but I, I'm I'm glad that folks. I, mean, I, I tried my hardest to get. Some Yimby. You know, Yimbies always say, like, people don't live in percentages, they don't live in units. It's true. I don't live in 50% inclusionary zoning. I live in 24 units are affordable. Um, but at the same time, I don't live in econ papers from Stanford about, you know, rent control. I yep. live in a rent-controlled unit. Yeah. And so when you, when you make the debate so academic and so impersonal, that's when people start becoming those neoliberal dude bros we don't like too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll say, if there's a silver lining, the fact I'd like to see statewide 
anti-gouging rent stabilization programs, statewide rent control, basically, and Prop 10 would have made it illegal. And I would love to see, I mean, the climate, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but I would love to see statewide yeah, rent control. Unfortunately, big landlords right now um, are, like, are not thrilled because of the whole Prop 10 debacle and probably won't be willing to negotiate. But yes, I do anticipate this legis- this upcoming legislative season, we will be seeing some anti-rent uh, gouging legislation. It's, it sucks that it wasn't closer because it now it looks like, oh, yeah, California loves landlords, and they don't, you know? But, I mean, here's the thing, though. I, the, every flaw I just said about rent control, I mean, Prop 10, yeah. not about rent control, definitely not, but about Prop 10, yeah. th- let's not pretend like that's why California voted it down. No, like I mean, they're not they're not some urbanists out there. I mean, ninety nine percent of them don't even know. Yeah, it's the campaign was tied with Prop Five, which is the ex- expand it's Prop Thirteen. Big 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 landlords spent so much to slander it and 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 told people that homeowners were going to lose their profits. And I, I we we often we often fight about what role homeowners play in sort of the class struggle. Yeah, and I hope that especially among socialists who have been less interesting to participate in the whole homeowners are part of the problem dynamic when it comes to our housing crisis. I hope now that this very resounding no vote from homeowners makes it clear whose side they're on. Yeah. I mean, this is not, you know, they, they people don't care when they shoot down our upzoning and uh, uh, transit-oriented initiatives. Now they just shot down rent control. It's about their equity, period. And it's not because most of them are bad people. It's because housing is an investment, and no one wants a bad investment. And so long as housing is an investment, it, there's, there is no economic incentive to, uh, to, to, to lower its value. They're, they're victims but, of a bad system. If, if you want to get skin in the game here, go a million plus dollars in debt. That's, that's the entry price of stopping a renter, stopping a sucker, and it's, it's awful. It's, I, I, had, I had Berkeley folks come up to me who are recent home buyers saying, Daryl, why should I vote for these tax increases that I get unfairly penalized for because of Prop 13 um, uh, to, to fund affordable housing? Yeah. And I'm like, you should do it because it's the right thing to do. But when you just have like a uh, your mortgage is, they spend a million dollars in a lottery ticket. A million ticket. dollars. I yeah, mean, <laughs> asking it's probably higher than that. Honestly, Berkeley is one point one, one point two million. I, I mean, mean, I can't. I'm I'm trying to like say just be a good person, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's more money, and I understand why people don't want to do that. So I call me crazy. I think the step one is saying, hey, if you want to be a good person, don't buy a home. Keep being a renter. Never buy a home until things are fixed. Well, being a renter is good, but what sucks about it is that your landlord is your master. No, it sucks. And I mean, <laughs> so that's that's where we need the social housing stuff. That's where the social housing stuff's important because everyone has a million different definitions for social housing. But to me, what it is really about is democratized housing, and it's about the tenants being the landlord. Yeah, they need to vote on what the the rent should be. They it's need like, to vote on the evictions. That's what. That's what social housing to me means it's not just a a buzzword or a platitude about affordable housing phrased differently or subsidized housing it's it's not even income capped it's not it's the tenants are the landlord there is no property owning landlord yeah it's like public schools earlier saying like if there's a a badly funded marginal public schools and everyone goes to private schools you're never going to make sure everyone gets what they deserve yeah but if everybody is a tenant then it will be good for everybody exactly if everyone had to participate in public schools and you couldn't segregate the crap out of them like every suburb tries to do, try to split them in half like you're doing in Concord right now, Yeah. then 
I mean, they would be vastly improved when you when you You'll force get them nagging, to put skin in the game. Nagging yeah. rich parents are going to, <laughs> and they'll find and they'll find ways past that. I mean, the tracking system, prison uh, school to prison pipeline system. Sure. I mean, they 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 still find ways even within the public schools to to segregate themselves. But I mean, you know, whatever. You got to start somewhere. Um, so back to the housing commission. Like, what is the like any any promising things with the pipe on there? How much how much of a good influence can can that have at a local level? We a housing make- commission. So, okay, so I'll tell you an interesting thing I just did. Um, I really tried to spearhead this North Berkeley BART initiative to build some housing on North Berkeley BART. Now, the Housing Commission is not the zoning board. It's not the council. We make recommendations to the council. It comes to the council as an item as to whether they should deal with it or not. But I I made this big uh, uh, motion to to recommend to the council to basically maximize density um, and ha- and affordable housing, not in terms of percentages, but in terms of total units on the North Berkeley BART site. Okay. Um, and this kind of caused a bit of a havoc, but I think that we is got- the staff open to analysis like that? Or um, yeah, of course. That's not. I mean, I've ne- I, is that something you've seen other people do? I've never seen. Uh, I guess a report by staff doing terms of total units like that. Well, well, so that'll be up to planning to determine. That's why we, we we couldn't state a specific number of units because we didn't want to overstep our boundaries. Our boundaries is to deal with affordable housing specifically. So what we did was after I made my announcement, I got neighborhoods neighborhood groups together to come to my meeting, and we decided on a recommendation to city council, which I believe they're supposed to take up either this month or ne- or next month saying um, basically when you rezone the BART parcel for housing, we want you to have the planning uh, department zone it at a level to where it maximizes the total number of affordable housing units through inclusionary zoning and through specific subsidies. Because then that's 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 a larger production and that means that we can probably go higher in zoning then we would otherwise do it if we're maximizing total number of units, not percentages, right? You can you can say 100% affordable housing, but a, 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 a LIHTC developer builds no higher usually than like six or seven stories. Are people going to organize against this? They, they tried, but it was actually rather successful. Nice. I had most people come out that were in favor of it. Yeah. Um, it's just one step in the North Berkeley BART development process, though. So we have our recommendation from an official city government board saying, hey- Council maximize affordable housing densities on that site, and, and that, is this is this enabled because of the recent Sacramento stuff with the North with the North Berkeley Bart? Well, I did it in part in response to SBA two seven. So basically, rolling through the drama, here's what happened: SBA two seven came up, and it said we're going to upzone transit parcels, and it was pretty clear that in part the 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 scapegoat for this legislation was areas like North Berkeley BART where you have these massive, you know, monuments to parking and no housing. I mean, it's a great BART stop and then a huge parking lot already. In a very affluent neighborhood and bordering then suburbs. a very affluent yeah. neighborhood. And so, and so the mayor and the city council representative had a meeting talking about a massive meeting, like hundreds showed up. It was crazy. Um, talking about whether there should be development at North Berkeley Bart or not. And, of course, they all said, uh, you know, they all said they opposed the bill. That's not new. Because the but people th- came out from the suburbs around the stop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
from everywhere. Um, but those people are going to be the most motivated. Yeah, I mean, but you know, the mayor and the city council person said they opposed um, SBA two seven. Of course, they wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't for that bill. Yeah. So again, like that's that's you know, they could have done it on their own accord. They didn't, but they did now. Okay, that's great. So they had their meeting, and after, and then they sort of made an item saying, "Okay, we'll take this up sometime in the future." I think largely because the bill looked like it was about to die. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, but it was a very it was a very interesting meeting. You know, I went there and I said point blank, like, um, as a North Berkeley representative, I mean, as a North Berkeley resident one of the most annoying things in the world is walking around this affluent neighborhood where you see black lives matter signs everywhere and there's no black people around. Yeah. Now, it's really annoying. It's like, it's, it's infuriating and it, it tells me people don't practice what they preach. You can have refugee welcome signs throughout North Bray and North Berkeley and the Berkeley Hills all you want to. No refugees living up there. Yeah. I mean, that's, right. that's the, it's the, uh, the, the huge combo you see, which is Everybody's welcome here, and then you know, save single-family zoning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, it, it's just—I mean, it's like—I don't know. I, I can't. It, it's such a—it's the paradox of our time, man. I don't know what else to say. But so I went to the meeting and said that folks said they were pro-density, folks said they were anti-density. You know, whatever. And then they kind of held off on it for a while. Um, and I was like, okay, well, fine. So I'll do some city action to make sure this, you know, spices up, especially because AB twenty nine twenty three was coming back up. That was a bill by Assemblymember Chu to give Bart the zoning authority to build housing near transit um, after roughly two years of not having a TOD plan by a city that was sufficient. Um, and so basically it, it, it caused a bit of a hullabaloo. People got a little mad and stuff. You know, people got a little angry. Um, but a lot of folks came out in support. And that sort of kept it in the news for a while. And then we transitioned to, uh, especially as 2923 passed, I gave me a lot. Of, I, I remember the day the day before having the meeting, uh, 2923 passed the assembly after coming back from the Senate. So it was on its way to the governor's office. And so I was like, OK, now we have some leveraging power here. And we went back and um, had the meeting and, the, you know, the mayor was receptive uh, the council member of the district was receptive. And uh, just recently, after it got passed, we had another meeting, a bigger meeting this time, showcasing all the different housing ideas at the station. Um, you know, local citizens like drew like pictures um, and and brought it to the planning department. Or, sorry, it, brought, brought that, it brought it to brought it to the senior center where they held it around and everyone looked at it like an art gallery. Is that where the Alfred uh, Hanging yes. Hanging Gardens yes. of Berkeley? So, so worth Alfred, looking up. That's the, yeah, a yes. beautiful drawing. Al, look up Alfred's Hanging Gardens of North Berkeley. Alfred uh, is a stellar uh, person. Great illustrator. Yes. Urbanist. Works at an uh, architect firm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we had, a, of course, they complained that the density in that was too big. But still, I was like, no, that's that's where we need to start. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, I mean, people had these wacky ideas. Some folks had, like, Hyperloop weird stuff. Some folks had no housing at all. Yeah. But th the point was that it, it, it really, it, it's gotten the conversation going um, especially now that Bart looks like they'll have leverage. Technically, Bart already owns the property, but they're not going to do anything without the city's permission. So, well, eight twenty-seven two would have blown up minimum parking requirements. How is how is that going to work in the North Berkeley with the new Bart plan and everything? So, so Bart, ha I don't remember specifically what Bart's parking requirements are off the top of my head. Um, I know they have a seventy-five uh, per acre, seventy-five units per acre's uh, minimum. Um, I know they have a 20% inclusionary zoning minimum. Um, I don't remember what the parking is. I don't think it's one-to-one. -one. I think it, it can be below that. 
So we I don't know what's going to happen to the parking. Yeah. Um but th- that's been like people's number one issue. Like people people hate high rises unless they're high rises for parking. Well, as, and, as you know, we just opened our new uh, green garage, and I, I was watching Mayor Jesse on Twitter. <laughs> Mayor Jesse, he loves his parking. I, 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 Jesse Ergin is when he was running in 2016. He was clearly running as a NIMBY candidate, even though he's a runner. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I know. <laughs> God, I, I the most infuriating thing in the world is seeing NIMBY candidate signs on multifamily housing. Yeah, it makes me so mad. I was, I was, <laughs> just to distract from the Jesse thing for a minute. I was campaigning for now successful reelected uh, council member Lori Drosty in Claremont, which is a very affluent neighborhood, um, same affluence if not maybe a little more than North Berkeley where I live. And you would come to like banned uh, under existing zoning codes, non-compliant multifamily 1970s apartments. You know how working class people in it. And you would see a, like a Mary Kay Lacey sign. And Mary Kay Lacey's not a bad person, but she she ran on the like anti-development, anti-housing slate. And I was just like, oh, my God, why is that there? Is it, That's like saying I don't like my land? house. I mean, well, I, hear, yeah, yeah. I hear a lot of people say, like, if they put uh, campaign signs in their windows in an apartment, their landlord will get angry at them. Right. So it's kind which of which is illegal. It's kind of I a think. thing. So, so some landlords, like my landlord, did not like the fact that I. So what I did was, is, and I kind of understand why this happened. I put a Lori Drosty sign, um, a Rashi sign, who was running in District One to replace uh, who also won. Yes, yes, who just won, um, who was running to replace Linda uh, Mayo. And by the way, Rashi will now be the council member over North Berkeley Bart. Nice. So that that that's a, a huge victory. Um, but I put like a Rashi sign, a Lori sign, and a Jenny Wong sign in front of my apartment, and I I can kind of see why that might look like it would speak for everyone. So it's probably just one tenant, maybe some very old person who was like, "I'm going to put this NIMBY sign out here," and all the other tenants are like, "I don't really care," because unfortunately, a lot of tenants don't vote. Well, this is, I mean, it is an asymmetric thing, but local politics, if you have a yard, you have more ability to speak to your community than yeah. if you don't have a yard. I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do my window because like, there's a freaking tree in the way. <laughs> uh, so I, I hear you a lot on Twitter, uh, especially today and yesterday, complaining about transit. Uh, any any uh, patented transit rants? Like if you were dreaming- As of the, an hour ago, I think. <laughs> like if you're, I just I kind of to get off of a, like a different thing- how important do you think it is that we like improve the trends in the Bay Area to lead to more housing equitable outcomes? So we just had Prop 6, which tried to repeal the gas tax. I said, yes, I want to protect the gas tax because it does hurt transit. I worry you're saying yes on Prop 6. That's confusing because oh, it's oh, no to kill yes it. Yes on no on Prop 6. <laughs> yes. You're yeah. strongly yes on no. Kill it. But But here's the thing. Because of the suburbanization of poverty that we have right now in the Bay Area, a lot of low-income folks who live in Vallejo and Pittsburgh and Solano County and San Joaquin County who commute in and serve us food and work at our you know, retail, shopping centers, everything, those people who are serving us, those folks don't have any way to get here other than to drive. It's the only way they – I mean, we I mean, don't make it possible. That's the I, only my, way they... My family lives in Vallejo, yeah. and the commute bus to Del Norte BART station is good. It's actually pretty good, but the 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 the, the local bus Soul Trans going to places in Vallejo is terrible. I would never rely on that. If I had to live in Vallejo, I'm going to get a car. And out in Stockton, where my dad lives, I mean, they still call their buses RTD. Hmm. I mean, for those who don't know, it's like what does that even stand for? Rapid Transit District, Regional Transit, like RTD is like a very old like 
sure. name for 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 like regional like seventies era. Like I mean, the buses don't run. Folks got to drive. Folks got kids. Folks got families. Um, I, mean, I suppose like the in, in at least in idea, when you increase the gas tax, you should see better bus service down the line. Yeah, but it's very hard to say. Well, tomorrow I'm still going to feel the pain. Right. So I don't I don't want to penalize low income. Uh, drivers for what they do, and, and and the way you do that, and frankly, is by building more housing in the urban core. Yeah. But since we don't like doing that, we flood all of our working class folks out to the suburbs and expect them to commute in and service food. And, and these are people who who are exiles from the urban core in a lot of yeah, cases. Yeah, these are the people who, frankly, should be there. <laughs> but I mean, okay, so my whole thing is yes. Vote against the uh, the gas tax repeal, but we need to have initiatives not to just fund urban core transit, but to also make sure suburban transit is sufficiently funded. Buses should not be running every 30 minutes to an hour during rush hour periods in suburbs in the Bay Area. We're an interconnected region economically. We need to find a way to make that better. I understand why someone in San Francisco who's got buses running in front of their house or in front of their street like every 7 to 15 minutes feels like, okay, well, I mean, I feel like we shouldn't repeal the gas tax. But I I, 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 I still tell the person out there in Concord or the person out there in Pittsburgh that like, hey, we need to fix your bus service so that you get good bus service too. We need to expand BART, not suburban, but also urban expansions. We need to make sure that BART is sufficiently funded. We need to make sure all this is done. It's not as simple as, as it. I just think that we, 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 we neglect the suburbs too much in our regional uh, planning when it comes to transit. And we need to stop doing that. I mean, it's true. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of different uh, connections here. We have, just how does the urban core pay for itself and we're equitable? But yeah, how does the urban core interact with the suburbs? How does the urban core interact with the exurbs? And the problem is we have too many damn cities and municipalities. Yeah, and they all it's so and they silly. All, like, they like, all hate each other. Have, the, have these cities shouldn't even exist. Like I love Berkeley, but Berkeley shouldn't exist. It should just be Oakland. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like, and then like neighboring Albany shouldn't be Albany. It should just be Berkeley. Like, I mean, we have so many dumb municipalities. Well, at least your your city is is doing some good things. I mean, after this election around here, where Santa Clara cities overwhelmingly said, you know, I think there's been too much growth here. Let's go back to the to the old homeowner way. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, these East Bay was very good in the elections. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't say the same for a lot of other places. <laughs> a lot of, uh, but like San Francisco for, was uh, wow. Dec- <laughs> decades ago, annexation was on the table. Like, should annexation be something we're talking about now? Yeah, I mean, Toronto did it. And I'm not – there was some interesting economic analysis by, like, the Canadian Department of whatever about, you know, how much it benefited. But I do think that in terms of regional connectivity, at the very least, transit districts should be regional. Um, I, I would like to see school districts be regional, but that's, that's like, World War III. Um, oh, yeah. Look yeah. at Boston with the busing no, no, in the 70s. School, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, I, that's a race war, right? Right. right. I mean, that, that's that's what they're uh, that's what's happening now in San Francisco. Berkeley was the first uh, city to actually desegregate and uh, do the busing system, and I think it was a very good system, you know. Um, but but I mean, still, how, how much land does that cover? Like, how what, how long is the longest bus route a kid would take? Um, because Berkeley's smaller and more compact, it's not that big of a deal. Low income kids who tend to be black from the Berkeley flatlands get like fifty percent of them get bussed up to the hills. That was me actually. I I lived in West Berkeley and I got bussed up to Oxford Elementary School, which was in the hills. Um, so I mean, 
it was good. It's good going to school with white kids and black kids and Asian kids and Latino kids. Even, even the name sounds ritzy. Oxford sounds. It's a good thing to put in your resume. Yeah, it's uh, Oxford Elementary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so, so yeah, I mean, we we definitely need to do that. But I'm, I'm about the transit, like for real, like that needs to be fixed, and got to stop Bart from doing all these stupid suburban expansions. I'm getting sick of it. We need to we need to pay attention to our urban core. We need that Geary subway. We need that second Transbay tube. We need a new line through Emeryville, and yeah, we need a connection to San Mateo so that I don't have to do all these silly. I mean, I mean, do, do you want me to run over how I got here? Cause yeah, it's crazy, crazy. tell everyone. Everyone so, should know. <laughs> so I you, live. You in, can hear the exhaustion in your voice. The man, so you've been out of breath. I, I've been drinking this Coke because I've been like <laughs> parched the entire trip. It was terrible. Um, so I thought I was leaving early. And I leave my apartment in North Berkeley. I take a bus down to the downtown Berkeley BART station. And while on BART en route to San Francisco, uh, apparently there was a power outage at MacArthur BART station, which forced our train to hold at Ashby Avenue stop for a while. I'm like, okay, fine. So then when we get to MacArthur, I need to transfer to the San Francisco train. But And the San Francisco train is waiting for us. And the minute our doors open, they shut the doors. Yeah. Like, well, and how far? The, it's how it's far hard is... for people to visualize this if you live on the peninsula. Yeah. But like, the, the way it works on BART is the Fremont train or the Warm Springs train, Fremont train, always transfers. It waits for the SFO or the San Francisco bound train. So basically, effectively, we have a San Francisco train on the on the Berkeley segment, and we have a a Fremont train, and the Fremont train will transfer to a San Francisco train that's coming from like Concord and Pittsburgh um, on the yellow line. And this train just took off the minute we showed up. And I was like, what? And, and keep in mind, this is Saturday, this is Sunday schedule. If you so gave an we, extra minute, everyone could have boarded? Y- like an extra second. Yeah. Like we just show, like you're not supposed to. I'm pretty sure that's not protocol. I don't know why they did that. And so we walk out thinking, okay, well maybe there's another train right behind it. People on the platform are freaking out. Where are you going? Where's the train going? And so we look at the 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 countdown clock. Next train out for 15 minutes. Yeah. And and again for people on the peninsula that may sound quick, but it's not. That's a long time. I mean me. <laughs> just talking about me a week ago. I walked for two hours waiting for the next bus to show up. You know. I mean. So I mean, I'll say this. It's there's always like a level of the, the thing about transit. Transit should get better, and the better it gets, the more you should complain because it should get even better. Well, look at how much space we see to cars over transit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I mean, we have gigantic monoliths to to numerous wasteful urban blight. Uh, freeway structures, but we only have like one BART route going through every city. I mean, that says something. I, I was over at the uh, East Bay Forever One uh, HQ uh, just last week, and I love the sign you had up, which is, why is it more expensive to take the bus than to drive and park? Yeah, for real. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Every single time. And that is, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So anyways, so I, I got the train, but it was like 20 minute delay. And on top of that, I tried to catch the 30 bus to the Caltrain Depot. And apparently the 30 bus going to Caltrain, I thought it was going to be next to the 30 bus going to Chinatown. You know, when the bus goes north, it goes to Chinatown. When it goes south, it goes to Caltrain. No, they put the southbound 30 bus like three whole city blocks away from Montgomery Station. It was basically at Powell Street Station. And I'm like, oh, man. And so I missed the bus and I had to call an Uber and my phone shut off and I had to call a second one. And I finally got here. But this was this was the sequel. Well, and that was before the Caltrain trip. And that took, I mean, that was that was straightforward. Yeah. Although actually, surprisingly, the Caltrain trip wasn't that bad. It was a baby. 
baby bullet. It was rather quick. I mean, it's quick. The Caltrain weekend it. schedules. It's a pain how infrequently it runs. Yeah, it but runs. The Caltrain's so nice, right? So like, it doesn't run late enough, and it runs infrequently. Yeah, but it's, it's good. It, 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 it's it's garbage in terms of service, but I mean, the train itself is fine. But like. This was only after yesterday where I was supposed to be here, and and I I, I was stupid. I went to the dentist. Well, and, and then you needed to be back in Berkeley seven thirty. Yeah, like, good luck getting but, the Peninsula back. But and- I thought I thought it would be fine. I was I, I don't come down here ever. I haven't been like to. I've never been to Stanford before, and I've seldom gone to Palo Alto. So I'm like. Oh, uh, whatever. It'll probably be like just a crappier version of BART. Like it'll probably come in like every 45 to an hour. And then I look at the schedule and it basically says there is no Caltrain arriving at Palo Alto between 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. Yeah. So I was supposed to be here at like two something. And this goes electrification delays, construction stuff? Uh, maybe. I guess so. Yeah. Apparently it was 90 minute intervals because of the construction. But I think in they're, general, making, they're making the weekends worse to make this all work out. Or in something. general, it's like 60, 60 minutes I've heard. And I'm like, oh my God. God, <laughs> how could you rely on this? It's like, okay, well, hey. Not many other podcasts could, could allow you to just complain about transit for about, about you know 15 minutes, and it's actually on topic. Yeah. And, uh, I hope listeners <laughs> enjoyed that. Uh, so how do, how do you feel? I mean, how optimistic do you feel that things are going to continue in a positive direction? Because I'd say it's like Sacramento, like things are, are working better and better to make sure that all these local city conflicts actually get coordinated better but is the tide always going to work in the right direction like like so we're seeing movement not just at the state level but at the federal level that elizabeth warren housing bill yeah that was great sure um i mean that's the first time that i can remember i've seen some like zoning reform proposed from the federal level what are the best details of uh, the warren um stuff to me i mean she was proposing like subsidies for uh, uh affordable housing and she wanted to do like a renter tax credit. But on top of that, she was trying to incentivize areas to basically allow multifamily housing um, if uh, and tie it to to improvement funds, which wasn't perfect because what would happen is wealthier areas would just say, well, we don't care about the improvement funds and low income areas would take it and then rezone for multifamily housing. So that that's technically more segregation. But at least it's something on zoning. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you still have to deal with the exclusionary areas, but still, it stops a lot of bad systems. That's, that was good. I mean, the, the feds complain a lot because, you know, subsidized housing money largely comes at the federal level and it gets wasted, you know, on all these different fact that, like, when it's extra permitting and zoning restrictions, it, well, it costs a lot more. Well, that's, I think that was in part why redevelopment was killed during the sequester era. Um, because the complaint was, and, and, and I think SF Chronicle had a really interesting piece about it when they were indirectly endorsing um, A27, was saying, like, look at all this money that, like, cities back then squandered on affordable housing. And, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not one to, because I, I really didn't like that argument during Prop C that, like, oh, we they're not going to use the money well. No, I mean, uh, honestly, it, it really is just more money. And SF but, has but, the luxury of being able to afford. Yeah, yeah. But like, we need to make sure that we 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 don't we don't tack on a bunch of extra expenditures uh, for these cities um, when we're doing our affordable housing. It should be buy right. Period. Like there there shouldn't even be all this like 
silly, silly input and, and uh, vulnerability to lawsuits. It should just be buy right. Affordable housing should be buy right. You want to fight about market housing all day? Fine. Yeah. But like a nonprofit building subsidized housing, which we desperately need, why would anybody defend the process? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Well, I, I know people who I think, you know, are like, I hate market rate housing, but I'm fine for, for subsidized housing. And they still face, like, they still are facing these NIMBYs. Like, oh, because NIM- it's fake. Yeah, I mean, NIMBYs are going to attack everything. It doesn't matter. It's like, oh, I don't like it because it's luxury. But when it's actually subsidized housing, they're still going to hate it. And a lot of people actually will come out in more force. I mean, even that first argument, like, I understand some equity advocates saying stuff like that, even though I don't think it's economic. The people I know who say it, they all are like $4 million homeowners. Right. Okay. So, the, the, okay, so there's like, like NIMBYism from like anti-identification activists um, is morally permissible uh, because arguably there is a strong desegregation argument to be made about where development disproportionately gets put because communities of color and marginalized areas don't get listened to when it comes to development as much as affluent neighbors uh, affluent neighborhoods do. Stop touching the mission until you get the west side up zone. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I agree with that. Like, if you don't want to put, I mean, I don't want to waste the mission BART stations, but I mean, Glen Park's not even touched. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you can, you can, you can do Balboa, you can do Forest Hill, you can do West Portal, uh, the Balboa Park, the Balboa Park Reservoir project. It's like an affordable housing project. Yeah, and it's stifled to death. <laughs> it's not. I mean, I mean it, it's like it doesn't matter. Like, it's always got to be something. But, but yeah, I mean, for real, like, I, I, I'm totally fine with not putting any market rate development in the mission. Um, because there's so many other places that have not been reasonably upzoned. But I, I. To be clear, I'm not going to conflate that. That's a respectful cultural thing because it's about giving communities that have been neglected, you know, civic power. It, it, it's it's as, an equity as, argument. As a, yes, yes. As an actual, like, anti-gentification tool, uh, I mean, rents are going to go up because there's a housing shortage. Yeah. Like, like and, it, and also a lot of well-to-do people are going to want to get in the mission because it's a place to be. And, I mean, it's very hard to say keep them like keep them out because money is going to chase this scarce resource people they're going to buy the victorians instead of the new developments which is what most of them wanted anyways yeah like nobody nobody moves to a neighborhood because they saw a rendering of a generic ticky tacky people hate the new developments yeah yeah. they suck they 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 move to the neighborhoods because they want the old victorians which is your housing it's just I like mean, I mean I mean I, I, that's just like like I, I people always make that silly argument that like the new development attracts techies no they no it doesn't uh, the the old Victorian apartments, the the old <laughs> the, the culture of San Francisco attracts techies to go live in those dwellings, and they Not, put up with these ugly new condos. Yeah, yeah, at that, best. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the people in the ugly new condos, quote unquote, attack other people in the ugly new condos. We see that in Soma, where like people in high rises are fighting against more high rises. Yeah, it's like. And you see people say, like... It's part of American culture to just be a NIMBY about stuff. And I've seen people say, like, they show a photo of this new development, say, oh, look at this luxury condo in our neighborhood. Look how ugly this is. And then they respond, like, this is actually 100% affordable housing Oh, I love that. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, because unfortunately some well-meaning equity advocates that I like and respect in person we, we have good convos with. But I actually... my The nonprofit I worked with on affordable housing actually built... A project that got slandered as a evil techie market rate condo, and on Twitter I'm like, "Yo, dude, that's actually 100% affordable housing." And if you walked in there, you'd see nothing but black and brown faces. Just letting you know. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that like 
like because it's new means it's bad. Again, that's what I mean. It's the McDonald's effect, man. Well, I'll say this: it's, it, a, I just, it's, it's, a, it's, it's old. A, it, it's it's old. It's what I've been raised to think that 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 people live in. So I don't want it to be different. It is a huge indictment. We have these approval processes, so we have beautiful new buildings, and our zoning and our approval process they end up creating the ugliest buildings. Yeah, so obviously yeah. they're not doing their job. Design review makes buildings uglier like nine <laughs> times out of ten. More than that. I yeah. mean, it's really they. Uh, I don't know what to say about that, but yeah. But here's the thing, though, that like people always conflate like upzoning with deregulation. I think it's so strange. Like it's not de- it's a regulation for the sake of public good is good. A regulation for the sake of skewing a market for the value and profit of homeowners is bad. All regulations are not good regulations. I don't know why that's hard to understand. Like, I, like, like people want to see it black and white. It's it's, it's regulation, you, you so it must be good. Like, uh, that's like buying into the like argument that conservatives make about liberals that we just like regulations. No, we don't. We like regulations that help people. We want safety. There's a difference between safety regulations and profit-driven regulations. Zoning, in large part, type zoning, like have industrial here, have residential here. Yeah, of course that's good. No one's see. That's why I don't like it when people say abolish zoning because. It leaves those nuances out. Nobody I will say seriously. Before that, they had nuisance laws, so you couldn't make a pork rendering plant next to your house. Really. Yeah, but but I mean, I'm fine with having like de- designated zoning for use. That's that's totally cool. I've got no issue with that. But apartment bans don't keep me healthy and don't keep me safe. They just keep my rent up. Yeah, that's I mean, all they do. I'm so so. <laughs> please stop stop it with this. Like I'm a deregulating libertarian because I don't think apartments should be banned. As I live near multi million dollar mansions. Get yeah, out of here. and you no. look at places like I mean everyone talks about it all the time, but I'm still going to say Japan. Japan says you can't put an industrial plant in a residential neighborhood, but if you want to put high density residential next to you know a place that has like a commercial use, sure, you can always build houses. And Tokyo is very affordable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, they have a thirty-seven percent vacancy rate. Build more housing than the entire state of California does, and has a growing population faster than most California's urban cities. It's a weird mega city. It's this gigantic footprint of a city, but it creates enough housing so people don't suffer the way they do. It's here. not perfect. I mean, their homeless rate is like a, a, a tiny f- a fraction of what it is in most uh, uh, Berkeley. I think it's like almost the same as Berkeley's. Even though it's like millions of people, um, but I mean, that, Tokyo is definitely a model we could look at in yeah. terms of building a sufficient housing. Also, we could look at Vienna in terms of building subsidized housing and uh, rent regulations. Yeah, look and price at the Nordic states. Look at you know. Yeah, you can look, look at, at Singapore. You can look, <laughs> look at, at yeah. Well, we don't want we don't want Singapore's housing discrimination. I don't we, want their well, gum policy. Yeah, I mean, we can do all that. Yeah, um, chewing gum. I said. Oh, oh, gum. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was to say like, is, uh, gun policy. What? Yeah, no, gum policy. But I mean, we can we can pick and choose what we like about um, cities and and model it after. And all I know is that American cities suck. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's we are looking at the bad parts of any change, and the status quo is just absolutely insane, and it's killing people. And there's some uncomfortable narratives that people aren't going to be happy with that there's no way to avoid. And one of them I pointed out was that. People often see gentrification not just in terms of a new condo, but also in terms of seeing uh, whiter or affluent um, people um, living in you know housing that's been there for years that used to be some working class person's house. And I really think that that's never going to change no matter how much housing you build. Yeah. A single family zoning in single family homes in an urban area is just a thing of the past. It's a finite type of housing and 
you know, I, I, I there there will be working class, new generations of immigrants and working class and multi housing, uh, residential developments that are high density. But I think that this because single family homes are so are are so finite and are increasingly rare in our urban core. You just that'll never come. To, the 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 days of seeing like as I used to see in West Berkeley with like black and brown folks um, living in single family homes all on a block like that. I think those there's nothing we can do to avert that other than bring back urban blight, which should not happen to begin with. <laughs> the solution to the housing crisis is not to make our cities yeah, worse. The solution is not to go back to the 70s um, yeah. and have white people leave again. No, I mean, it's... They just shouldn't come and push people out. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be zero-sum fights to deal with, but you shouldn't make it worse, because when you make single-family zoning, you're just making the you know the cutthroat nature of this just so much worse. Yeah, I mean, it was so annoying about this, is all this is largely largely pushed in the promotion of segregation and, and, and racism and this anti-black behavior. I mean, San Francisco especially. It's just, yeah. Anti-black is... I mean, it's a, it's a terrible city. You know, put all their public housing uh, near radioactive Hunters Point, wipe out their neighborhoods, black folks' neighborhoods in our communities in the Fillmore, um, you know, price people out of the Visitation Valley area. Uh, the hate went from, you know, almost half black to no black. I mean, it's 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 just it's ridiculous. And housing discrimination is so fundamental to so much of how our zoning and land use policy works. And and this all happened a lot. You walk through these, you walk through these neighborhoods. The physical environment hasn't changed much. Yeah, they, I mean, but this, they just this, basically they this, just basically got rid of the actual people who live there. I just got in an argument with this guy. Like, yo, he's like, I mean, it's like, well, I was like, dude, like, have you walked through the hate? I mean, when my grandmother was walking through the hate, I mean, she could call that home. Now I walk through the hate. I'm oftentimes I'm the only black person there. Yeah, and it's like. He's like, well, they've been internally subdivided. I'm like, that's not the point. The point is, is that the housing capacity has largely been kept the same, and when you do that, you're trading people. Yeah. And 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 and, and these neighborhoods are expensive by the amount of black people they don't have in them. This is this. I mean, this has been well documented. It's it's a fact that a black person will get less for a house, a black owner, than a white person will. I mm. mean, that's been measured. So is uh, is that everything else equal, or is it because people it's because have of race? No, they, they've controlled. It's a they've black controlled. For, they've controlled for, for variables. Um, that was happening in the seventies. This was found out in the seventies. Um, when I mean, actually, this was known in the fifties with the first, you know, Levittown developments. You know, uh, they were appealing because there wasn't black people there. Yeah, and and so um, there's tons of housing discrimination based on who owns a house, and that hasn't gone away. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's, that's just what it is. And so the most expensive neighborhoods are the ones that have the least amount of black folks in it. That's what it is. And it's a system as designed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as far as <laughs> like, like, well, OK, so, op, you know, what are you optimistic about, you know, in the short term? I think not a lot of big term stuff. Like what what do you see like the next couple of years? What are the highlights? I'm hoping that the uh, recent SBA 27 bill that I'm helping to work on with others comes back um, as a bill that will really legalize housing throughout California and will have a lot more of those equity lens um, to it. That's why we're talking to equity groups already about how the bill should look. I'd like to see a reform in LIHTC, um moving away from the tax credit model, um, which really just 
serves banks. It's a big ticking time bomb. These things last for only a couple decades. Yeah, they're not go- affordable forever. That's that's the thing a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Um, so we need to reform that. I think that can happen. I think rent gou- um, gouging legislation could happen soon. Um, hopefully, if we just move on after Prop 10, you know, lick your wounds and get on to it. Um, I mean, I'm hoping Berkeley moves in a very pro-housing direction. I, I wanted to say this about uh, the mayor of Berkeley. Yeah, he ran as a NIMBY, no doubt. He, 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 his whole thing was like developments are bad. You know, our previous mayor, Tom Bates, had all these bad developments. And I think he's realized, like some other council members have realized that, well, these NIMBYs are crazy. I've heard him criticized online as being an Eddie Haskell character. He's like this little boy sucking up to all the you know seniors. In he the was area. doing that. That's that, that was his strategy. And hey, it worked. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to help. You know. He won. You can't criticize. You can't, him. And can't hey, don't hit the player. Hit the game. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> he's been going in a pro housing direction. Sure. He he's made signals and gestures that he's willing to accept that Berkeley needs to become denser. Um, I've gotten good cooperation from him on North Berkeley Bart. Um, so, I mean, I think it's just kind of an evolution thing. Yeah. It seems like a lot of these folks go in running as NIMBYs because that's what they think their constituents want. Yeah. And then at the very end of their term, they're like, oh, wow. Well, I mean, he's not at the end of his term yet. So the fact that he's doing this kind of evolution early, um, he's got two more years or great. more. Uh, well, before. he can run for reelection. I mean, but he's a two more years in this term and then he, re- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, so I mean, we, there, there, there's a conversation to be had. And I think also another really big thing I learned about this election that sometimes NIMBYs are, um, at, at fault for doing is some of the ageism stuff I don't think is good. You know, we make jokes about boomers and stuff. I've actually run into a lot of homeowners who are very pro-housing. Yeah. Uh, around the BART station even. I was canvassing homeowners and without me saying a thing, they were like, I really do think we need to build housing Yeah, at the BART station. I really do think that um, it's bad that my kids can't afford to live here anymore. Um, I really, you know, one lady came up to me. I don't even, I literally said, hi, my name is Daryl Owens. Will you vote for Rashi? And and she goes, yeah, I, I think housing's really important. I mean, I know it's supposedly progressive to not want to build housing, but um, it, it's just gotten so ridiculous at this point. We need to build more. I'm like, I didn't even say anything. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I mean, we've, we've gotten to that point. So I think we, I think if the urbanist movement wants to be strong, we have to be welcoming to, to, to older folks to even homeowners. Well, there's a there's a correlation. The older you are, the more likely you are to have been able to have bought a home decades ago. Yeah, and I think that... It's not like there's a lot of older renters because they mostly have been priced out. And there's... Yeah, and that's actually a big thing. It actually affects even the, the, the housing secure homeowners as well. I, I made this point a lot um, that uh, uh, end-of-life care and senior facilities... Um, or, or just, you know, just, just condos that, you know, seniors can, you know, navigate with are in short supply. Yeah. And a lot of these seniors are stuck up here in like Berkeley Hills homes that they can barely navigate. They got to get like wheelchair adjustments for, and they're having a hard time. And a lot of them said they would just sell and move to a, you know, supportive care senior facility, but there's not a lot in Berkeley. Yeah. And there's not a lot in the East Bay or anywhere else. I mean, the, the closest one they can find that's affordable. It's like Livermore, and I mean, it goes even further than that. And, and that's not just an issue for uh, seniors. It's a big issue, in particular, personally speaking, um, for uh, the disabled community as well. Yeah. Um, my friend was wheelchair-bound, and we had a very hard time finding him an apartment because basically all the apartments in Berkeley 
um, that we could find uh, were like ticky tacky uh, dingbats that are not ADA accessible. And Largely so, because the housing stock we have tends to be old. Yeah, we're it was not, we're prior, not building. It was stuff. prior to a bunch of that stuff. Yeah, and so like the only place we could find housing was on the first floor, and those seldom had vacancies. Yeah. So you're already limited by the the short supply of apartments you have and multifamilies you have. To make it worse, a lot of it's not ADA accessible. So out of that short, out of that small quantity. You're basically taking a tiny little thimbleful of housing and hoping that, that that's even accessible for you as someone who is disabled and, you know, can't traverse stairs. And and you're you're hoping that out of that tiny little sample you can get that it'll be vacant and it probably won't be. So, I mean, new development's also very important for folks with disabilities. That's why it needs to be affordable. Yeah. Um, but that's also why we need a lot of it in general. Sure. As, as just an accessibility thing, because it's, it's really important. Like, I mean, most of our apartments in Berkeley are not ADA accessible. And it really sucks to see, you know, it's, you know, in, in so many ways, it's heartbreaking to see change all around you. But you look at Tokyo, they have because their culture, they have a cultural kind of uh, desire to see, like, basically start over, make a new housing. They see complete turnovers. They see modern buildings here. Yeah. Everything is so old. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that, that that really hurts people. And when the quake comes, don't don't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I'm not I'm not saying that in a, in a, in a ghoulish way, but I'm no. Like, I mean, it's it's something. Your we're... obsession with being old. I mean, it's it's going to all come crumbling down, and you got to learn how to rebuild. And we shouldn't wait to rebuild when a quake happens and a bunch of areas get torn down, and then suddenly there's incentive to build there. Like, unfortunately, much of our freeway teardowns were and some action in San Francisco. We shouldn't wait for quakes. We should just get started now. And that was a, that was a relatively minor quake compared to what might be in the cards. Yeah, Loma Peretta was, I mean, that was, it's going to get worse. It's going to be wildfires in the hills soon. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of dry trees and stuff. I mean, the Oakland fires are bad. It's going to get worse. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to laugh about it. it, it no, no, it's, I, it's, I was actually laughing because I was thinking of uh, wildfires, and I thought about the exploding eucalyptus trees of Berkeley. Uh, so that was eucalyptus. The eucalyptus controversy is always, always, always a winner. I mean, yeah, there's <laughs> a whole bunch of problems. <laughs> so no, I mean, oh man, you, you gotta laugh. That's all you can do. Uh, but uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for coming down here. It's been a lot of fun to, to just rant about this for a while. Uh, yeah, I know. I was trying to think. Of, we've got plenty more to rant about, but we got to cut it short. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right. Thanks, I'll, man. Yeah, thanks for coming down here. You want to see? Wait, wait, hold on. Before we uh, cut the recording, uh, do you want to see when the next Caltrain's coming? Yeah. Let's, let's check it out. Let's see. Here's me, uh, East Bay dweller, trying to return to the East Bay. <laughs> real life real life transit planning here on Yeah, the- uh let's see weekend timetable. Okay, here we go. All right. Um what time is it? It's 3:16. It's uh 3:16 Pacific so Standard a, Time. I take a northbound train to up oh, 4:42. Wow. I literally missed it at 3:12. Yikes. So an hour and a half. Well, Maybe maybe uh, you can see a few buildings around Stanford campus. Are you for the first freaking time? serious? Oh, come on. <laughs> wait, am I looking at the right? Oh, wait. I'm, I'm, wait. No, I am. Yeah, it's 442. Yeah. All right. Time to go tour Stanford and <laughs> got nothing else to do. Great. Ridiculous. God, fun transit, folks, please. Well, thank you for killing all of your Sunday to come down here to Stanford <laughs> campus. All right. Thanks, man. We've had uh, Daryl Owens here on, here on uh, the Henry George program. And uh, you can check out the previous episodes at seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU Stanford.